a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I know you don't come here looking for sugar-coated accolades, pats on the back, attaboys, and checks with your name on it. No, no. Although those things would be nice, and frankly, I would love to be dispensing all of those things. No. Chances are very good you tune into programs like this one because at some level, you want the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. All right, well, I can't give you the whole truth because I don't possess the whole truth, but I'll give you the very best take that I can on what's happening around us. Hopefully, information that you will find credible, timely, and principled, as opposed to just simply partisan bumper sticker slogans that we shout back and forth at opposing sides. The goal here is not to convince you that I have the right way and nobody else does. It's to convince you that the best thing you can do right now is think as clearly and independently for yourself as you can. Because let's face it, there are a lot of games going on. A lot of people who uh, specialize in manipulation. And for you to become an unplayable piece on their chessboard is one of the smartest things that you will ever do. Got some great sponsors who make this thing possible, and I have a list of them at my, in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, also Life Saving Food, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and, Go- and GovernYourCrypto.com. Huh, easy for me to say. Ah, where to begin today? You know, the the temptation is always there. I, I should probably explain this just so you, you can understand where I'm coming from. There's so much in motion right now, and there's so much happening. You know, I always want to try to focus what's the most important. What What is of the most value? And sadly, I guess this is just my own personal bias, but the stuff that grabs my attention, and I'm like, oh, oh, wow, I got to say something about that, almost always is bad news. And I'm sorry for that. That's, you know, I I want you to understand, I really do try to moderate how much bad news I'm finding and, and sharing. And at the same time, there's things that I just feel like, man, you know, if there, if there are food shortages approaching, for instance, I know that's uncomfortable. I know that makes people just go, oh, geez, man, I don't want to think about that. And I hope you believe me when I tell you, I don't want to think about it either. And at the same time, if there is someone who needs to hear that warning, if there's someone who needs to to understand that we have some very real risks and very real breakdowns economically and uh, and you know governmentally and culturally, it's better to face those things unpleasant though they may be. And 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 if there's anything I should apologize for, it's it's just simply this. You will not have the luxury of saying, "Well, nobody ever said anything. No one ever warned us." Because there are plenty of voices out there, my own included, that are warning about this and have been for years. And it's not because we know better or we know what's best for you. I'm doing it because I sincerely believe that we have a window of opportunity to basically get to get it together and get squared away. And I would feel absolutely derelict in do, in my duty you know, as a, as a child of God, as a, a citizen, as, as your brother, 
to not say something when I had the opportunity, even if it runs the risk of making me unpopular, always just a doomsayer, I'll take that risk. Because I know there are some people for whom this is important, and and that's who I'm trying to reach out to. If it's not for you, that's okay. My belief system does not require you to believe what I believe. But I sure would appreciate it if you would consider some of the things that, that I share with you. Okay. Having said that, you don't have to end your prayers in the name of Elon Musk to appreciate just how deeply he is upsetting the ideological gatekeepers at Twitter. Got a great article here from Laura Williams. This is published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. I'm going to take a moment here to encourage you. Subscribe to their emails. Daily, they send out about a half dozen or so just incredibly well-written, well-researched articles on a whole bunch of different topics. They have marvelous writers, and they will definitely contribute to your understanding of the world in a way that isn't just partisan, you know, pablum being spoon-fed to you. Now repeat this after me. Her article is titled, The Panic Reveals So Much, Elon Musk, Twitter, and the Digital Public Sphere. Laura Williams writes, on March 26th, Tesla CEO Elon Musk tweeted, given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. Shortly after, he used Twitter's polling function to ask users if they believed Twitter rigorously adheres to the principles of free speech. Two million followers responded, with 70% answering no. A reply to his own tweet enjoined, the consequences of this poll will be important. Please vote carefully. Less than two weeks later, Musk revealed a 9.2% stake in Twitter becoming the platform's largest individual stakeholder, rather, and goosing the stock price 25% after a six-month slide. Now, initially, Musk seemed poised to take a seat on Twitter's board of directors on April 9th. A seat on the board, which already consists of millionaires and billionaires, would have capped Musk's ownership at 14.9%. Since that announcement, however, Musk has withdrawn from the board option and pivoted toward hostile takeover. By not accepting the board seat... Musk is free to acquire unlimited shares and is absolved of any fiduciary duty to act in Twitter's subjective best interest, which may actually free him up to act in the public's interest instead. Now, reactions to his acquisition and subsequent offer were predictably divided along partisan lines. Heavily left commenters portrayed the purchase as a super-villain-esque attempt to manipulate national discourse by policing content less. Former Cabinet Secretary Robert Reich predictably but astoundingly inverted reality when he called Musk's vision for an uncontrolled Internet the dream of every dictator, strongman, and demagogue. The Washington Post itself, wholly owned by Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos, published a confusing collection of tirades lamenting Musk's stake as a blow to equity and accountability at Twitter. Journalists and academics are among Twitter's most devoted users, and a commitment to free speech would endanger their cultishly curated Twitter sphere with actual liberalism. Others who appreciate Musk's often libertarian counter-narrative hoped the influence of a free speech absolutist would return some ideological balance to Twitter. Free speech stalwart Glenn Greenwald tracked panicked mainstream media reactions, quipping, they're only petrified that the wrong billionaire might control the platform, one who may not censor for them. Now, in the latest development, Musk has offered to buy Twitter outright and take the company private. 
according to his offer letter, Musk believes in Twitter's potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe, but that it will not serve the societal imperative in its current form. So the question she asked next is, is Musk right? Has Twitter's current form become incompatible with free speech? Now, Musk has been publicly critical of current CEO Parag Agrawal, even comparing him to Joseph Stalin after dredging up a 2018 interview in which Agrawal, then Twitter's head of tech, said the company should focus less on thinking about free speech, noting where our role is particularly emphasized is who can be heard, how we direct people's attention. So it isn't hard to see why libertarian-leaning Musk would be incensed. Twitter's previous CEO, Jack Dorsey, prioritized removing misleading content and disinformation, particularly around the 2020 presidential election and COVID-19 mitigation efforts, and was seen by many as policing of political speech and a distinct move by the platform to limit the reach of unpopular viewpoints. In October of 2020, Twitter and Facebook both banned mention of Hunter Biden's lost laptop, a story broken by the New York Post concerning the son of then-Vice President Biden and his dealings with the Ukrainian businessmen who sought to use his influence to benefit their bottom line. Echoing the Biden campaign, the social media platforms declared the Post story Russian disinformation, suspending accounts that tried to share it. The election's October surprise was thus concealed from many Americans' public view, even as it was diligently ignored by mainstream media. The laptops and emails discovered have since been confirmed to be genuine, with even the New York Times forced to agree. Twitter's original value proposition, an app that flattened hierarchies by allowing anyone to reach and tag the world's powerful and circumventing the editorial filter of mainstream media outlets, is clearly under siege. Now, Laura Williams says <clears throat> Musk's critics claim they fear he would limit Twitter discourse on national policy. But Twitter is already in regular contact with the White House to discuss what users should see. President Joe Biden's administration said it partnered with Facebook and Twitter to publicize vaccine availability and also to censor what the administration called anti-vax misinformation, with Biden calling the latter a wartime effort. Much of that censored data was later vindicated. Huh. Imagine that. A White House source told Reuters the government's role was to ensure an unacceptable idea does not start trending on such programs and become a broader movement. Well, I don't see what could possibly go wrong with government regulating thought in that way. I'm sure it's for our better, probably a matter of national security. All right, I'll turn the sarcasm down for a minute here. We'll come back to this article just the other side of our break. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to mention SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They are one of my sponsors here on the program. I know you've heard me talk about the fact that they carry the best machines available. And we're talking from entry-level sewing machines starting at about $200 up to, you know, high... Top high top quality high tech uh, you know long arm quilting machines costing fourteen fifteen thousand dollars or more. There's some really amazing technology available, and somewhere if you are in in that uh, continuum of of interest in sewing or embroidery or quilting, they've got a machine that is good for you. 
And best of all, they back up their purchases by not only servicing what they sell, but they also can train you how to use that machine to your best ability. So won't you click on the link, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Let them get you set up or take care of you if you're already set up in terms of your sewing supplies, your machines, your maintenance, your training, all of that. And I'm just going to mention this again at the risk of sounding apocalyptic, but it would be a really good idea to have the ability to fix or even fabricate your own clothes just because everything's getting more expensive. And with supply chain shortages, who knows? Clothing may not be as easy to get as it is right now. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com All right, back to the article from Laura Williams. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research website about uh, the panic reveals so much. Elon Musk, Twitter, and the digital public sphere. She says previous shifts at Twitter to combat misinformation established ideological conformity around key issues. And dubious distinctions about what was offensive or dangerous were invoked to boot journalists and even a sitting American president off the platform. Although Russian President Vladimir Putin and Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, Khamenei rather, retain their accounts, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, top jailer of dissident journalists, owns 5% of Twitter and has come out against Musk's acquisition. Twitter users who are younger and more likely to vote Democrat than Americans in general generally embraced evolving content standards that agreed with and promoted their values. Increasingly tight control over who can occupy Twitter space seems to have been popular with customers, at least those who stuck around, but it eroded the potential of the platform to empower expression. Glenn Greenwald tweeted, Social media was heralded as an innovation that would liberate individuals from centralized control by the state and oligarchical power over their speech. It has become the exact opposite, the most powerful tool of information control and speech constraints ever devised, end quote. So Laura Williams says, from Musk's point of view, Twitter's intrusion into election information control may indeed make freer speech on Twitter essential to a functioning democracy. Now, his decision, on, his decision to propose a buyout rather than be constrained by participation in Twitter's board shows he doesn't believe it can be reformed from within. Now, she goes on to say social media platforms can't violate the First Amendment. The Bill of Rights protections only constrain government, and shareholder-owned Twitter has a legal right and free association protections to disallow some viewpoints or exclude some users from its platform for violating the company's terms of service. Musk's call for a higher standard of discourse doesn't rely on law, but instead on the principle of free speech. The good or bad intentions of censors are irrelevant. The unimpeded exchange of dissenting opinions is required for a vigorous marketplace of ideas. Now, free market advocates and censors alike have enjoined users unhappy with content moderation to simply start your own platform. But that has proven difficult. Following events in the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, more than 70,000 right-wing accounts were deactivated, and many sought a Twitter alternative in Parler. Well, that, effect, that program was effectively shut down when it was removed from Apple and Google app stores and ousted by Amazon web hosting services. Then-CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, said the deplatforming of Parler and its users was not coordinated but that companies came to their own conclusions or were emboldened by the actions of others. So if coordination between <clears throat> private actors to de-platform certain issues or voices could be proven, 
well, then a legal case against them would be conceivable. And Parler's fate, the ability of big actors to cut off an upstart alternative at the knees, should give us pause. Now, Laura Williams says censorship, whether conducted by private actors or public officials, always begins as an attack on society's most unsympathetic people. Particularly noxious ideologues, notably neo-Nazis, become a litmus test, and few few feel moved to defend them. Although the American Civil Liberties Union famously did, back when that organization prioritized principles over political partisanship. Once the protocol for silencing unpopular speech is established, however... The boundaries of what's bannable rapidly expand, and the range of allowable opinion shrinks. Noam Chomsky wrote, If we don't believe in freedom of expression for people we despise, then we don't believe in it at all. Counterintuitively, framing Twitter as a de facto public square and a crucial component to democracy, Musk might actually invigorate claims by partisans who wish to see changes to Section 230 or antitrust regulation or public utility provisions used to regulate behavior by online platforms. During the Trump administration, dozens of bills were introduced in Congress to repeal or modify Section 230, a once obscure provision of the 1996 Communications Indecency Act. The bill's original author described it as giving up-and-coming tech companies a sword and shield and to foster free speech and innovation online. Coinciding coinciding with the dawning of user-generated content like newspaper comment sections and review websites, Section 230 says individual users on the web bear responsibility for what they post. Not the websites that host them, that's the shield, but also the sites that can take down speech that conflicts with their platform's interests or user preferences. That's the sword. Whether a platform takes something down or fails to take something down, they can't be sued by the executive branch. The push-pull over 230 shows many stakeholders' priorities. And she says this provision has the impact of protecting private actors from government interference, but has also given us constantly roiling debates about fake news and misinformation by critics who say platforms should more tightly control what's posted and cries of censorship and bias. So given both the political polarization and the massive consolidation of major media interests over the past decades, we should also be mindful that more regulation leads to fewer startups, less competition, a squeezing out of nonprofit outlets, and overall, a less robust realm of ideas. Musk's Twitter activity has attracted executive agency attention before. Tweeting funding and policy decisions at his companies, Tesla and SpaceX, to his 81 million followers before formal paperwork had been filed ran afoul of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, that action reportedly netted Musk more in returns than he paid in fines. Some have speculated that his strategy of acquisition, board seat, uh, bait and switch, and buyout offer is intended to drive up the stock value with publicity so he can sell his stake at a tidy profit. The offer to buy Twitter outright at the price his announcement had so recently inflated, warrants scrutiny. But whatever Musk's agenda and Twitter's past behavior, the risks associated with boards and billionaire shareholders controlling or curtailing free speech, or political speech rather, are a tiny fraction of the destructive potential of inviting the federal government into the content moderation equation. Laura Williams says, you know, fewer than one in five Americans use Twitter. But the makeup of those who do amplifies the platform's power to spread and silence voices and viewpoints. Twitter years ago dove wholesale into censorship of unpopular political thought using euphemisms like content moderation and protections to circumscribe allowable opinions and conversations. The platform declared itself the arbiter of truth in matters about which no human being could be certain. 
And in doing so, Twitter has endeared itself to a group of powerful interests and influencers who maintain a tightly controlled public narrative by constantly comparing it to a left-leaning ideological script. So she concludes, Elon Musk is not an epitome of civic virtue and his intentions are, as ever, inscrutable. Whether his hostile takeover of Twitter is realized or turns out to have been a stunt, remember the outrage aimed at Musk this past week. His call for free expression and his willingness to put up cash to restore it revealed a network of interests who depend on censorship in order to maintain power. As Glenn Greenwald notes, the panic reveals so much about how censorship serves the powerful. That's some great food for thought. I've got a link to this in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Among my sponsors, I'm so happy to count lifesavingfood.com. And I'm thinking more and more the name, lifesavingfood.com, is so appropriate as I uh, pay attention to stories about uh, oh, planting woes, fertilizer shortages. And uh, lately in the news, one of the things I read about in the last week, two major food production facilities, one in Oregon, one in California, have gone up in flames. And I'm sure this is just some remarkable coincidence, but it doesn't exactly calm my concerns about the possibility of real, not just local, but worldwide food shortages. So if this is something that gets your attention, if this is something that makes you go, ooh, man, I, what can I do about that? Well, the answer is have some of your own food stores, have the ability to produce more of your own food. Basically build your self-reliance wherever you are. You can build more self-reliance. You just got to get started and then be consistent about uh, keeping on doing it. So lifesavingfood.com, great place to start. Proud to have them as a sponsor. Well, let's uh, let's talk about buying a car. If you're unfortunate enough to be buying a car at this moment, you will notice that the deck is firmly stacked in favor of the dealers. And I don't care if you're buying a new car. They're tough to find. There's a huge shortage of new cars. But even buying a used car is very, very difficult. I've got a great article here from Adam Thierer. He is a fellow with the Mercatus Institute, or Mercatus Center, rather, at George Mason University. And it's a title, it's entitled, Why Make Direct Car Buying Illegal? Did you, did you even know this was a thing? Adam Thierer says, with gas prices soaring to well above $4 per gallon, every day seems to bring new examples of federal and state lawmakers decrying the situation and in many cases, pushing for more environmentally friendly transportation. So it seems strange, then, how many states actively limit the ability of consumers to directly purchase an electric vehicle, or EV, something that could help on both counts. Amazingly, he says, it is illegal in some states for consumers to purchase an EV, or any car, directly from an auto manufacturer. In other words, buyers must go through a dealership even when they don't need help from a middleman, not to mention the markup. States with outright bans on direct sales include Alabama, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Carolina, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Now, he says other states severely restrict uh, direct car purchases by imposing a variety of conditions of the sale. 
Still others allow direct sales from EV leader Tesla, but not from other newer automakers. So shockingly, only 10 states permit consumers the freedom to purchase vehicles however they wish. Adam Thierer asks the question, why would lawmakers make it illegal for us to purchase, to directly purchase electric vehicles or any cars for that matter? And he says, sadly, the answer comes down to pure power politics. Local car dealerships don't want the competition, and they've convinced some state leaders to protect their businesses with the law. Yep, regulatory barriers. That's what it is. So imagine if your local florist didn't like competition from a grocery store and coaxed lawmakers to make it illegal for you to shop for flowers anywhere else, forcing you to always buy from them. Now You'd likely be outraged. Yet that's the sort of protectionism car dealerships enjoy. Now, these prohibitions were imposed decades ago when car dealerships and lawmakers feared large automakers would bully mom-and-pop dealers. But that logic no longer works in a nation full of mega dealerships that have huge market share, thanks at least in part to the aforementioned legal protections from competition that they enjoy. Adam Theora writes, the Biden administration has been pursuing efforts to promote EVs in the hope of positioning America to drive the electric vehicle future forward, outcompete China, and tackle the climate crisis. State efforts to block or limit direct sales of EVs are clearly at odds with these goals. He says President Joe Biden could encourage the Federal Trade Commission to investigate whether these state restrictions on direct car sales violate federal antitrust laws. I mean, the FTC already studied the issue in 2015 when it commented on Michigan sales restriction, calling them a special protection for dealers, a protection that's likely harming both competition and consumers. The FTC rightly concluded that consumers are the best ones situated to choose for themselves both the vehicles they want to buy and how they want to buy them. Now, federal regulators rarely use antitrust laws to combat state-imposed restraints on competition, however. Even so, states have good incentives to eliminate these laws themselves. It represents a rare triple win that can help expand consumer choice, save people money, and advance environmental objectives. State lawmakers shouldn't let local dealerships drive this debate. But unfortunately, instead of permitting customers or consumers rather to take the wheel, many states are steering policy in the wrong direction by either refusing to reform these restrictions or, worse yet, proposing new bills to limit competition. It's clear that local dealerships don't like new rivals such as Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, Lordstown Motors, and other EV makers that use the direct sale business model. Moreover, with fewer mechanical parts, EVs may not need as much service as traditional vehicles, meaning they could undercut service centers, which are a major profit engine for many local dealerships. Now, of course, these uh, many consumers still enjoy going to the local car lots to test drive options, and those service centers offer real value to many of them, too. But that doesn't mean the traditional business model should be locked in stone by force of law. Adam Theorist says there aren't many other products where such naked protectionism is still tolerated except for hard liquor sales. But even there, reforms are being considered. It would be shocking if state lawmakers were able to liberalize direct booze sales before granting consumers the freedom to buy a car directly. But he says then again, perhaps it all makes sense, considering just how drunk on power some of these local dealerships have gotten. Interesting. Well, there's there's some food for thought for you. I, 
I still I, I see electric vehicles and I think, yeah, that's that's kind of cool. But maybe it's it's every weekly conversation I have with Eric Peters. He has pointed out that yeah, whatever upsides there are, you know, they're sleek, they're they're speedy, they're silent, they're environmentally friendly. But there are some real downsides to EVs too. To me, the biggest downside, and this is probably just you know my state of mind here, is the fact that it feels for all the world like we are being frog marched at bayonet point into buying them, and our internal combustion engines are are being slowly but methodically outlawed or otherwise pushed to the margins. I just don't like the feeling of a bayonet point in my back. So that's where that's where most of my resistance comes from. All right, shifting gears. Nowhere is the hypocrisy of the U.S. government more apparent than in its lust to get its hands on Julian Assange. Got a great article here from Caitlin Johnstone. She pulls no punches describing how the U.S. cries about war crimes while imprisoning a journalist for exposing its war crimes. I don't know if you caught this in the news yesterday, but uh, a British magistrate's court signed off yesterday on Julian Assange's extradition to the United States, bringing him one step closer to a U.S. trial under the Espionage Act, which threatens press freedoms worldwide. Now, Assange's lawyers described it as a brief but significant moment in the case. And the WikiLeaks founder is... uh, is very likely to be transferred from prison in Britain to the U.S. where he will face trial. The extradition case now goes to U.K. Home Secretary Priti Patel for approval, which will likely be forthcoming as Patel is a reliably loyal empire manager. At that point, Assange's legal team will be able to launch an appeal. Now, this is happening at the same time that the U.S. and the U.K. are loudly demanding accountability for alleged war crimes by the Russian military in Ukraine, which is interesting because attempting to bring accountability for war crimes is precisely why Julian Assange is in prison. President Biden said of Vladimir Putin earlier this month, he is a war criminal following allegations of war crimes in Bucha, Ukraine earlier this month. I think it's a war crime. He should be held accountable. Now, Caitlin Johnston says, that's really all I'd like to say here today, really. This, this discrepancy is very interesting. I mean, can we deeply appreciate the irony of what's going on here? Because it's so obscene and outrageous, it's actually hard to take in unless you really let it absorb. The most powerful government in the world, which serves as the hub of the most powerful empire that has ever existed, is working to extradite a journalist for exposing its war crimes while simultaneously rending its garments over war crime allegations against another government. She says, I mean, damn, you would think a power structure that had recently been caught red-handed committing war crimes and is currently in the process of imprisoning a journalist for exposing those war crimes would at least have the sense not to yell too loudly about war crimes for a little while. But this is how confident the regime is in its ability to control the narrative. She says, really, take it in, really digest it. The more you think about it, the freakier it gets. Not only is the empire persecuting a journalist for exposing its war crimes, while at the same time demanding that others be held accountable for war crimes, but it's also attacking the free press for reporting the truth about the powerful, while at the very same time engaging in a massive propaganda operation that holds, which holds that it is involved in Ukraine to protect its freedom and democracy. She says, the gall, the temerity... The balls on this empire. Caitlin Johnstone calls it about as straight as anybody I've ever seen. I've got a link to her article in today's show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. Still trying to work out the particulars of getting HSL Ammo's founder, Spencer Worthington, on the program. I mean, we could talk about ammo. I know there are people like, hey, uh, when are we ever going to get primers? <laughs> when, when is the price of ammo ever going to come back down? Because it's been in very high demand for the last couple of years. However, the reason I want to have Spencer come on this show is to talk about frugality. I mean, this this guy is a legit businessman, started his business from scratch, and has built it up into a very stable and I would hope profitable business. I mean, it ain't easy. He's got to work really hard with some of the different shortages and different demands and, you know, supply and demand uh, factors to, to work into the equation. But, man, does he know a lot about uh, taking care of his employees, taking care of his community, taking care of his customers. So I guess the bottom line is this. If you if you want to buy ammunition, please click on the link, hslammo.com. It's in my show notes. Consider doing business with him. High-quality, new, and remanufactured ammunition. Great way for you to turn money into skill. All right. Let's take a moment here to talk about uh, how war is like steroids for the state. Got a great article here from Judge Napolitano on how the government uses war to assault freedom. Now, he says, most judges and lawyers agree the war on drugs in the past 50 years has seriously diminished the right to privacy guaranteed by the Fourth Amendment. Now you have a small group of legal academics arguing that the war in Ukraine should be used to diminish property rights guaranteed by the Fifth Amendment. So here's the backstory. The Fourth Amendment was written to guarantee that the government may only search and seize persons, houses, papers, and effects pursuant to a search warrant issued by a judge after the presentation under oath of evidence demonstrating that the place to be searched more likely than not contains evidence of the crime. And the warrant itself must specifically describe the place to be searched and the person or thing to be seized. Now, these requirements, the work of James Madison, who was the scrivener of the Constitution in 1787 and the author of the Bill of Rights in 1791, was intended to have two effects. The first effect was to uphold the quintessentially American right to be left alone. The second was to compel the government to focus its law enforcement personnel and assets on crimes for which there is probable cause, not fishing expeditions or hunches. Madison's language prohibited absolutely the use of general warrants, a favorite tool of the British government against the colonists. General warrants were based on whatever the government wanted or claimed it needed. The colonists were tormented by and driven to revolution over general warrants as they authorized British agents to search wherever they wished and seize whatever they found. Surely the dreadful colonial experience with general warrants was a driving force behind the wording and ratification of the Fourth Amendment. Judge Napolitano says, sadly, during the war on drugs, prosecutors and police persuaded judges to craft emergency exceptions to the Fourth Amendment. These included allowing police to look for whatever they wanted in cars and homes and using the CIA for warrantless surveillance, lest the drugs supposedly being sought be destroyed before capture. The effect of this was to destroy a fundamental liberty in deference to easing police work. That's the definition of a police state. 
The courts effectively ruled that somehow the Constitution prefers liberty rather than the evidence of crimes to be destroyed. Now, the Fifth Amendment protects the life, liberty, and property of all persons from destruction or aggression by the government without due process of law. Due process requires a jury trial at which the government must prove fault. Thus, property cannot be seized temporarily or taken permanently without either a search warrant or a jury trial. So, now back to the war in Ukraine. He says, I have argued in this column and elsewhere that the Biden administration sanctions imposed on Russian and American persons and businesses are profoundly unconstitutional because they are imposed by executive fiat rather than by legislation. And because the sanctions constitute either the seizure of property without a warrant or the taking of property without due process. So when the Fed sees a yacht from a person whom they claim may have financed Russian President Vladimir Putin's rise to power, they are doing so in direct violation of the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Similarly, when they freeze Russian assets in American banks, they engage in a seizure, and seizures can only constitutionally be done with a search warrant based on probable cause of crime. As well, when the feds interfere with contract rights by prohibiting compliance with lawful contracts, that too implicates due process and can only be done constitutionally after a jury verdict in the government's favor, at a trial at which the feds have proved fault. He says, as if to anticipate these constitutional roadblocks to its interference with free commercial choices, Congress enacted the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977 and the Magnet. Magnitsky Act of 2016. These constitutional monstrosities purport to give the president the power to declare persons and entities to be violators of human rights and that by mere executive declaration alone to punish them without trial. Napolitano says these laws turn the Fourth and Fifth Amendments on their heads by punishing first and then engaging in a perverse variant of due process later. How perverse? Well, these laws require that if you want your seized property back, you must prove that you are not a human rights violator. As if to run even further away from constitutional norms, a group of legal academics began arguing last week that property seized from Russians is not really owned by human beings, but by the Russian government. And this crazy argument goes, since the Russian government is not a person, there is no warrant or due process requirement. Therefore, the feds can convert the assets they have seized and frozen to their own use. Now, to these academics who reject property ownership as a moral right and exalt government aggression as a moral good, the argument devolves around the meaning of the word person. The Fourth and Fifth Amendments protect every person and all people, not just Americans. Remember, their restriction is on government, not on the people. And in American jurisprudence, person means both human beings and artificial persons, corporations, and governments capable of owning property. Property ownership is defined by the right to use, alienate, and exclude. Only persons can exercise those rights. Judge Napolitano says Madison and his colleagues clearly sought to protect property rights from government aggression, no matter the legal status of the owner. We know this from the judicial opinions involving foreign property that preceded and followed the ratification of the Fifth Amendment. If this were not so then nothing could prevent the feds from seizing and converting the property of states or local governments or international religious institutions to federal use. Maybe I should read that again, because I I really want that to sink in. If this were not so, 
if the Fifth Amendment were not there limiting government's power to act against your property, then nothing would prevent the feds from seizing and converting the property of states or local governments or even international religious institutions to federal use. I wonder how long before we see something like that happen. Napolitano says, War is the health of the state and the graveyard of liberty. The drug war was a disaster for freedom. The war in Ukraine will be so as well, but only if we permit it. I mean, it's I, I have a hard time with things like civil asset forfeiture. But there are people who really believe, well, no, that's a good thing. I think we ought to have that because, you know, we need to give our police the tools they need to stop drug dealers and to stop bad people from profiting from their criminal gains. And they might once in a while get someone who is actually engaged in something bad. But again, it's putting the cart before the horse. If the government can, on probable cause, issue a warrant, you know, they can, they can uh, put charges against a person and then take them to court and in a, in a criminal trial, show them to be guilty, prove the case that, yes, this person actually is guilty of the crime of which they're, appro- they're accused Then and only then is it time to start talking about, okay, now we should be able to seize assets that were related to whatever that criminal enterprise was, but not beforehand. I made the mistake of clicking on a YouTube video yesterday, and this was, granted, this was the Canadian Border Authority, but anytime anybody had a large amount of cash with them, they swung into action trying to find a reason to say, well, that's suspicious, yeah, this person seems really nervous when we started asking them lots of pointed questions about where their money came from and, and why they had it and why they had it structured the way that they had it. Well, gee, it's almost like your job was to make them nervous and then based on, well, they seem nervous and that's kind of an indication of criminal activity, so we better take the money, which they often do. And you may think, well, Brian, that's just how the Canadians operate. Here in America, we do things differently. No, no, actually, we don't. There are still states in which uh, civil asset forfeiture is a thing and an arbitrary amount of money. It could be $5,000. It could be $20,000. It could be a quarter of a million dollars. A police officer, upon realizing you have that cash, can declare, well, this is suspicious or we think this is normally associated with criminal activity and take it from you and then require you to prove the negative. I did not get this through criminal means. It's rare that people are successful in getting their cash back. And this is robbery, although it's robbery dressed up in a state-issued uniform. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thanks for carving a little time out of your day to come and revel in wrong think. It's really exhilarating. Every time you realize that you are... A little bit closer to being an unplayable piece on that grand chessboard, which so many actors are trying to manipulate and move you around on. 
it's it's quite the empowering feeling, but you got to be willing to think for yourself, and that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Did, did you catch that? Not so much to agree with me. I don't care if you agree with me or not. In fact, I, I really, look, I appreciate you listening, but i gotta, I got to get this off my chest. I do not need your approval. I don't need your accolades. I appreciate it when people say, Brian, thank you for what you're doing. Hey, I'm just one voice of many out there trying to speak the truth as best I understand it. But there's something incredibly liberating when you get to the point where you don't need the approval of other people in order to continue moving forward and, and, and doing what you feel is right. So thank you for being part of the, the process. Thank you for being you know part of this growing audience of wrong thinkers. I've got some great sponsors who make this possible as well, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. I know mortgage rates are starting to inch upwards. Well, maybe leapfrog upwards. But if you are looking for a home, a VA, a home loan rather, a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, please talk to Heather. If you're anywhere within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, count on the Heather Turner team to get you the loan you need at the best possible rates. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, I got something interesting here. This may be a little bit mind-blowing for you, but I, I think this is, is a thought experiment that uh, is, is worth undertaking. Imagine that you were transported back into your six-year-old body, but with all the wisdom and experience that you now possess. Would anyone take you seriously? And why not? If the answer is, well, no, they probably wouldn't. William Gillis has this really interesting take on what he calls our first, the first prison. He says, adult supremacy claims its legitimacy from the notion that age grants critical experience and wisdom. Now, we all know exceptions to this. Adults we would classify as unwise. But the ideology persists because it's true that choice in the absence of knowledge is not real choice. Someone has to understand the context of their actions. They have to have an accurate map of the world in order to be able to trace the consequences. This much is true. And so defenders of adult supremacy also want to get into a fine-grained fight over how informed a child is or can be. But he says, picture yourself today ripped from your modern adult body back into that of a child. All of your knowledge, experience, and wisdom transmitted intact. Try to imagine how you might try to regain the autonomy and standing of your adult self. You simply wouldn't be able to. All your knowledge, all your insight and experience would be meaningless. It would make no difference, no matter how advanced your knowledge of mathematics, philosophy, psychology, history, politics, etc. These would simply make you precocious, arrogant, to be more honest. You would never be able to win standing at the table as an equal human human being worthy of respect. Your consent would not matter. Nothing you could conceivably do would get you free from your prison. Your status is a slave or emotional prop to the adults who own you. No matter how much wiser or more intelligent you might be than the adults holding your chain, it would change nothing besides getting you some distinct treats if you performed well as a pet. Now he says adult supremacy paints itself as a kind of meritocracy, You are only denied political agency because you don't yet have mental agency. But there is no mechanism, not a single one, under adult supremacy, whereby a six-year-old might prove qualifications to obtain their freedom and equal status. And even if the state were to create some absurdly intense exam that you might pass, there would be countless barriers to you even getting in the door. 
No parent would ever surrender their property like that. Teenagers are given rights not because they've crested some cognitive hill, but because, but because that's when some of them start to be able to beat up their parents. When they can band together for resistance and physically overwhelm their masters, it is only the physical threat posed that's ever won an age group their autonomy. Intelligence and the infinitely mutable concept of wisdom are but the thinnest of drapes over this. Rhetorical excuses with never an ounce of sincerity to their use. He says, seriously, try to imagine, try to strategize how you might secure your autonomy, secure any manner of existence that wasn't a grueling prison merely by being an adult mind in a child's body. Unless you lucked out with the most abnormally enlightened anarchist parents, there's just no means. At best, your parents might allow you to attend university, accumulate books of some interest, get paraded around as a prodigy, but you would not be free. You would not be able to make almost any real choices about where you live, who you associate with, how you work, eat, etc. And those limitations are deeply structural. Not just laws, not just the cultural norms and background ideologies that shape your parents' sense of, of the possible, but a vast panoply of expressions of power. Now today, with the internet, you might be able to eke out some manner of a double life, but the limits of that mask are nevertheless intense. Imagine being a six-year-old and realizing you face a 12-year jail sentence, a horizon twice your lifespan ahead, a level of extreme insertion and control by a totalitarian arrangement that doesn't just feel entitled to condition you physically, but mentally, emotionally, an apparatus of domination that sees its very success as your total consumption by it. No prison in the world is attentive and absolute as parents I know, that one stung. I'm like, hey, I love my kids, but I don't know how to argue against that point. He says, when we fear, what we fear when we fear prison is a partial return to the social status of child, but itself only an afterimage, an echo of what childhood is actually to those who refuse to forget. We as a society have a normalized suppression, a ritualistic forgetting of the trauma that bludgeons us into being. The entire apparatus of our society is a conditioning of submission, far more extreme than any political institution can even be bothered to attempt. Every single person summoned into this world is given their own cop, their own master, at least one, sometimes two. It's a level of totalitarian attentiveness the CIA and NSA spooks can never manage and look like a laughable shadow of. Big Brother and the Panopticon have to rely on smoke and mirrors to try to give the impression of being as present in your life as a parent. Now, there are occasional traitors to adulthood, individuals who might try to break their conditioning, the every imperative of our society, and relate to you as an actual person despite your child body. That might come to you as a sincere, a truly sincere ally and friend, but these people are never parents both because of what that framework inextricably means and what our society will allow an adult to get away with. Most of what you find are the timid half-traitors, those that would assure you they would help if only they could. They're actually on your side that they'll do what's possible. He says, if the chief characteristic of the parental relationship is an expectation of a performance from you to scratch a psychological need, a wound, a hunger on their part, these half-traitors are just parents in disguise. The performance they ask from you is different, but it's still a request laced with knives. A half-trader telling you they totally respect you, they want to be your friend, is just demanding a different dance, one to assuage their guilt. They remember enough to know their position over you is inherently abusive, 
But their chief concern is removing that stab of guilt and remembered trauma, that dissonance, that conflict in their conscience. They hold their power over you just as frantically when push comes to shove, or they hold it with the calloused air of someone who can can leave just as easily as they came. The cool aunt, the preschool teacher, functioning as an aid relief worker, come briefly to take selfies with you as a prop. They are not co-conspirators. They are the incomplete flotsam, the corpses of children who tried to make it over the finish line intact. Incomplete insurgents into adulthood who were worn down and forgot their mission. They're not undercover children, but the warped remains. Poorly formed adults, but adults still. No, he says, chances are no one is coming to free you. There are no true allies among the prison guards. You are stuck, not just in a six-year-old's body, but made synonymous with. You are six years old. Your identity is subsumed in your status in the age hierarchy. A ladder of mutilation to a distant promised escape. If there's anything left of you to be free by then. You're forced to fixate on each arbitrary rung of the ladder. Six and three quarters. A survivalist monomania because it's the only thread to meaningful agency available to you. But no one cares. No one actually gives a crap. They smile and applaud in the cruelest of thin performances. It's meaningless to them because it actually is meaningless. You have no more agency today than you had a year ago. You are no more free. So it's not that children are ignorant is his point. It's that adults want them to be ignorant. I'm gonna, I have a link to this in the show notes, and I would encourage you, take a look at this. Again, this is uh, The First Prison by William Gillis. I read stuff that challenges my thinking. This one pushed me hard. I'm still trying to get my mind around it. And I, I want to argue against it. But I'm struggling to come up with the best arguments. Ah, well, back to the books. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's give a quick shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. Very happy to have Dr. Ward Wagner aboard as one of my sponsors. You can go to DixieChiro.com. In fact, there's a link in my show notes right under the sponsors section. I would encourage you to click on that link. And if you're dealing with car accident injuries or if you're dealing with neuropathy or bulging herniated discs, know that Dixie Chiropractic can take care of all of those things. In fact, you might want to ask, if you're you're dealing with bulging herniated discs, ask about the $99 intro special. Two treatments plus massage. If you're dealing with neuropathy, here's the $99 Calmere treatment plus massage. Again, it's DixieChiro.com. Please mention to Dr. Wagner or his staff that the reason you're checking in with them is because you heard me talking about them on this show. I appreciate it. They would appreciate it as well. I want to share just a couple of last thoughts here from William Gillis's article, The First Prison. And I'm again, I... The idea of being transported back to your six-year-old body, but with all the knowledge and wisdom that you have today. You would still not be treated with anything that, that have, have, would come pro- close to approaching the kind of respect that an adult would receive. Because your body looks six years old and you would be uh, basically without agency. And that would be done with the approval of every adult around you. 
So what does that look like? Well, your thoughts and aspirations would die on the vine. Everything you do is without consequence. Every insight and experience you have is thrown into the void. Because they say that adulthood is a matter of accumulated experience and insight. What a cruel joke. Until you are released from bondage, those experiences and insights are continually thrown into the waistband. Waste bin, rather. Nowhere to go. You can preserve some tiny subset of them, lock them up, build a giant arc around them in your brain, hope they survive the eons, preserved enough to carry some desperate final partial journal, existential howl to some later you. But that's all you're given. It's like a little tiny journal hidden beneath the floorboards. What survives the holocaust of ideas and dreams unlistened to, yet not allowed to pursue in any meaningful, consequential way? Bottled up in your prison cell, they wilt and die around you. And William Gillis's point here is this is the machinery that makes adults. This is the machinery that reproduces adult society. Every hierarchy, every abuse, every act of domination that seeks to justify or excuse itself appeals through analogy to the rule of adults over children. We're all indoctrinated from birth in the ways of because I said so. The flags of supposed experience, benevolence, and familial obligation are the first of many paraded through our lives to celebrate the suppression of our agency, the dismissal of our desires, the reduction of our personhood. Our whole world is caught in a cycle of abuse, largely unexamined and unnamed, and at its root lies our dehumanization of children. This is the societal role that the child plays. Not a new person assisted and helped by sincere friends and allies in a race to explore and spread your unique agency into the world, but a subhuman to be tamed, a commodified thing, a representational externalized nerve cluster for adults to prod at their own mutilated remains, a puppet that they wear to talk to themselves. I mean, this is... I don't know if this is rocking you as hard as it's rocking me, but the idea is that uh, it's not that kids are ignorant, it's that adults want them to be ignorant. So he says, no, they would not help you. No one in the world would ever countenance a six-year-old with the wisdom and knowledge of someone much older. It's not that they would have not have the mechanisms to recognize it, it's that the entire apparatus of adult supremacy is about suppressing it. If you were whisked back into the body of a child, you would not have a leg up on life so much as a prison cell to slowly atrophy in. That's what childhood is, the systematic unmaking of agents. Again, I don't, I don't know that I can quite distill the lessons involved here, but I really do want to, to make some more sense of it. So I'm going to be giving some serious thought to that on my own. Nevertheless, there's a link in the show notes if you want to check that out for yourself. Let's take a moment here to, to shift gears. I'm going to ask you this question. How important is it to be right Well, if you want to be capable of clear and independent thinking, you have got to be willing to do your own research. You've also got to be willing to be wrong. I'm just going to share a brief excerpt. This is from the uh, Egypius, sorry, Eugipius. I believe it's a substack here, eugipius.com. Brief thoughts about thinking. Eugipius writes, most people are wrong about most things, and this is especially true of the people who are brought to your attention by newspapers and television. It doesn't matter how smart they are or how well-read or how thoroughly educated. There aren't many fields of endeavor where you can get ahead on the sheer strength of being right. Our expert class succeed instead by cultivating the correct allies, publishing the right papers in the right journals, working on the right problems, winning the right grant funding, 
making the right friends. People who enjoy these trivialities are precisely the people for whom being right is not a priority. Above all, experts prefer to work within and propagate safe consensus positions. That's because they primarily have careerist goals, which are best pursued secure from the criticism of colleagues. Being wrong is not nearly so important as seeming wrong, which can cost you promotion. Once you realize that experts are little more than consensus establishing and propagating professionals, statements about what the science says or what the literature shows acquire a totally new meaning. So the advice here then is forget about expert opinion. There is no substitute for doing your own research. In everything that matters to you, you must consider the actual theories that are presented to you for yourself. And particularly in areas of limited evidence, you'll be less interested in which theories are wrong, although that matters too, than in the subtler problem of which theories are more or less probable than the alternatives. Most of the theories that are put about are not really theories at all. They are instead arguments designed to justify or advocate for specific policies. Arguments aren't genuine attempts to understand anything. They're attempts to convince other people to think in a certain way. That's very true. And Eugippius says, people assemble arguments like they would build a house. They develop a program, that's the plan, collect evidence in favor of this program, the materials, and finally they present their program with all the evidence adduced in neat footnotes, that's the construction. This approach is reasonable enough if all you want to do is persuade, but if you want to understand how a given model of reality fares against others, it's the wrong way. What that means is you've got to be willing to step up and do your own research. You've got to be willing to apply that uh, heuristic method of learning, which is to actually read things for yourself, think about things for yourself. By the way, this doesn't mean, you know, the lone person in the wilderness, you know, struggling against the wind and the sun. But you have to be willing to do most of the heavy lifting. Now, something that I have found immensely useful I'll share this with you. Just, you know, you can do with it what you want. But if there is a particular topic that you are trying to get your mind around, and I'm, I'm just going to throw this one out there, cryptocurrency, for instance. I know a lot of people, myself included, have expressed interest in, well, I want to learn more. I want to know about how it looks or how it works. And I, as I look into it, it becomes very clear, holy smokes, there's a lot more to this. It's not like something you can just summarize in, you know, one neat paragraph. Oh, how neat. That's That's how it works. I mean, it's... There's some pretty serious depth and background that has to be obtained to really understand how it works and and why it is or isn't, you know, right for you. And you can do it on your own. What I recommend, though, is, yes, be willing to do your own research, but also, if you can find friends who likewise have an interest in this, Consider the same sources, okay? If there's a book that explains it well or that purports to explain it well, you and several friends ought to read that book and then sit down and have what's called a colloquium. Discuss it. Talk about your observations. You're going to be surprised, hopefully you'll be surprised, to find not everybody read it the same way. Not everybody drew the same conclusions. See, it's because we all have our own little personal filters and our own life experience that shapes how we process that information. Pick a subject. Research it. Compare notes with other people who have likewise been researching it. I'm not saying you're going to be 100% right every time, but you'll come pretty dang close to the truth by using this approach. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I provide it as a free resource for wrong thinkers everywhere. All it's going to cost you is your email, which I will not sell and I will not share with anybody else. I use those emails simply to send out the show notes every morning when I sit down and publish my show notes. That's uh, that's something that I would love to include you on that list. And I do spend pretty much every waking hour looking for and, and by the way, and being fed great information by listeners like you who are paying attention to what's going on. I, I'm just a, look, I'm, I'm one person. I'm a one-person research team, but actually, in truth, I have a lot of people out there who have their ears to the ground and find great information and share it with me on a daily basis. And if you're one of them, thank you. I really appreciate what you're doing. And I want to share that information as freely as I possibly can, so consider it. Go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Click on any day. It doesn't matter which day. Scroll down at the bottom of the show notes. You'll see a nice big button that says subscribe. That's where you put in your email. That's all it takes. Well, it's been interesting to watch the the saga of uh, libs of TikTok being gone after by the Washington Post. One reporter in particular. And I, I'm coming to the conclusion here, especially after watching this and after watching uh, Connor Boyack's Tuttle Twins get a big bump in sales after CNN published a hit piece against them. I've concluded the only thing sweeter than succeeding without your critics' approval is when your critics end up directly contributing to your success because they're banging the drum so hard to try to convince people, look at this awful person, look at them! <laughs> Thanks for the free publicity. Please don't stop. Andrea Widberg, writing for AmericanThinker.com, writes about how the Washington Post has triggered the Streisand effect for libs of TikTok. She says the Washington Post attacked libs of TikTok not because it wants to debate the merits of the leftist-made videos the Twitter account exposes to a wider audience, but because it wants to silence the anonymous woman who runs it. Ironically, in a new form of the Streisand effect, the Washington Post seems to have exposed libs of TikTok's material to literally hundreds of thousands more people. Now, if you haven't seen this, first of all, I congratulate you for not spending too much time on Twitter. But libs of TikTok does a marvelous job of actually letting the hardcore left speak in their own words. And so if you want to see things, uh, for instance... They locate videos that leftists voluntarily place on social media about race and gender and other forms of wokeism and then republishes the same material on the Libs of TikTok account. And some of this stuff is really damning stuff. I mean, here's an example. This is, oh my goodness, this is a, a, an Oklahoma middle school teacher. Quote, if your parents don't accept you for who you are, F them. I'm your parents now. This teacher was let go last week after complaints of grooming and this TikTok plus others containing questionable content were brought to the principal's attention. This is one of the reasons why the left is now on a rampage against libs of TikTok. And it underscores the the core leftism that the Biden administration, the media, academia, and a lot of K-12 through education across America is engaging in right now. Now, the account, libs of TikTok 
started acquiring extra traction when Florida's Parental Rights Act, a.k.a. the anti-groomer bill, a.k.a. the don't-say-gay bill, became a matter of national news. For those trying to make the point that bad things are happening in classrooms, Libs of TikTok was a goldmine. And again, they didn't create material, they did not fake material, they didn't dox people. What they did was republish material that others had already placed in the public domain, like that Oklahoma middle school teacher. Here's another one, a fifth grade teacher showing her lesson plan for teaching gender and sexuality. Here's another one. I'm a man, but when I was a baby, the doctors told my parents I was a girl. I talk to my students all the time what it means to be about tra- what it means to be trans. These are six-year-old kids. Here's another one. Why would a preschool fly a transgender flag from the front of their building? We shouldn't define the word woman because gender is a system of impression. This is clearly a guy wearing lipstick. I'm about to define what a woman is for you. X chromosomes, no tallywhacker. It's so simple. Schools are obsessed with sexualizing and grooming kids. Here's a New Jersey middle school holding an assembly promoting masturbation created by school staff. So again, it's not a matter of, well, they're, they're misrepresenting the message. No, that's the problem. They're putting the message out there exactly as it was put forward by these advocates who just can't seem to get their minds out of the gutter and want to share it with your kids. So Twitter twice tried to shut down the libs of TikTok account, but they were forced to walk it back because all it was doing was rebroadcasting videos and photos that were already available and considered acceptable on multiple social media platforms. So Plan B was put into place. Plan B was putting a reporter by the name of Taylor Lorenz on the trail. Now, she calls herself a journalist, but she's not. She's what's called an outer. That is, she outs people for daring to have political viewpoints different from hers, and she'll punish anyone close to those she seeks to destroy. So because she disagrees, for instance, with Pamela Geller's politics. By the way, I disagree with Pamela Geller's politics, too. But Lorenz outed Geller's daughters, who developed their own popular non-political Instagram accounts. She went after Kellyanne Conway's daughter. And speaking of Geller, some people have noted that Lorenz seems to have a real issue with Jews. Apparently, Libs of TikTok's uh, proprietor is Jewish. Lorenz has also made a big deal about the horrors of being doxxed, claiming that people have harassed her because she dared to expose them. In other words, she can dish it out, but she can't take it. Andrea Woodberg says, ultimately, Lorenz is an utterly disreputable excuse for a human being. And there's no doubt that Lorenz doxxed Libs of TikTok, revealing not only her name, but also publishing her real estate license, which contains all sort of identifying information. Now, the Washington Post eventually deleted that license and then lied about it. Andrea Woodberg says, I sincerely hope that Libs of TikTok sues both Lorenz and the Washington Post, along with the individual editors involved, and that she gets Nick Sandman Rich off them. Lorenz is a trust fund kid, and the Washington Post is Jeff Bezos' private political playground, so there are some mighty deep pockets there. The public should also deride, shame, and shun Lorenz and the Washington Post, but here's the biggest punishment of all, and it's the natural consequence of Washington Post's doxing hit piece. Although the purpose was to silence libs of TikTok, it dramatically increased her reach. Now, Andrea Woodberg says, I don't know how many followers Libs of TikTok had before she was doxxed, but I noted about 630,000 on Tuesday morning after the numbers had already begun accruing. As of now, 
It's 11.45 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday. The account is at, on Tuesday, rather. The account is at 800,000 followers, and it's increasing, as best I can tell, by about 2,000 new followers every 10 minutes. This is the Streisand effect on steroids, a term that refers to Barbara Streisand's attempt to suppress a photo of her Malibu property only to draw massive attention to the photo. With libs of TikTok's expanded audience, the account had better start going back to its core activity, which was showing the wider world the bizarre, creepy, even dangerous materials leftists freely promote about themselves. By the way, there's a quick update here. Uh, Tucker Carlson began his show on April 19th with a long segment on Taylor Lorenz and her doxing of libs of TikTok's proprietor. He revealed Taylor Lorenz did not do the sleuthing work to uncover the identity, but rather got the information from software developer Travis Brown, whose work is supported by the nonprofit Prototype Fund, which is in turn supported by the German government. Very interesting. Look, I know this this sounds a lot like, hey, uh, Brian, you know how you say you stay away from the daily tattler and stuff? I do think this is worth pointing out, if if only for this reason. This is this is the lesson that I would take from it. If you're going to speak the truth, or if you're going to publish the truth, as Libs of TikTok does, in other words, just they're pointing out, this is what the uh, these uh, activists, these groomers, are actually saying. You can expect that you're going to receive some very serious opposition. I mean, this is. This is someone coming after her to defame her, to try to intimidate her. I'm sure that the encouragement, Antifa, now that you know where she lives, you need to show up and do your thing. But it also has that negative effect of what they're trying to accomplish, which is to silence this, uh, this individual or to silence this movement. It brings more attention. I mean, I remember a few years back... Someone had uh, had submitted an op-ed to, to one of the local news p- sources that, uh, boy, it, it came after me with both barrels. After it was published, I had a couple friends reach out and wow, Brian, that lady really does not like you. But my favorite response was from uh, one of my writing mentors, actually. And, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was an excoriating piece. It was harsh. <laughs> it was like, Wow. That is some bitter, bitter stuff there. But my writing coach reached out to me and said, Hey, congratulations. You've been noticed. I never forgot that response, and I think that uh, it's it's the silver lining you have to consider. Yes, you're going to have critics, but the good news is your critics will lead more people to you than you would be able to get on your own. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. I'm watching with great interest as masks slowly fade into history, or at least the mask mandates. Saw a very interesting exchange, uh, too, on Twitter. Someone, uh, I, I don't know who this person is. He just had a selfie of himself wearing a mask. Okay, virtue signal received. Good citizen. Thank you. But uh, this person was complaining. He was walking through the airport, dutifully masked up, even though it's not required. And apparently uh, an airline captain, pilot, walked past him and cheerfully said, Hey, take off your mask, man. Breathe free. You don't have to wear that anymore. 
And the person with the mask was like, it's funny how the people who were complaining about how everybody was forcing them and, and forcing their point of view on them is now out there forcing their point of view on me. Apparently not recognizing the distinction between someone saying something to you and threatening to throw you off a flight or ban you from flying for the rest of your life. There's a little bit of a difference there, but it's probably one worth noting. Now, as relieved as I feel to see these mask mandates finally disappearing and people finally finding the backbone to say, not just no, but hell no, I'm not going to put that thing back on, we are still facing a very serious threat in the name of public health. And there's not much being said about this in mainstream media. Big big surprise here. Kit Knightley, writing for OffGuardian.org, writes about a pandemic treaty that will hand World Health Organization keys to global government. Suggested clauses would incentivize reporting pandemics and see nations punished for noncompliance. So this is not to generate fear, but to, to generate some awareness. Keep an eye on this development. Kit Knightley says the first public hearings on the proposed pandemic treaty are closed, with the next round due to start in mid-June. We've been trying to keep this issue on our front page entirely because the mainstream is so keen to ignore it and keep churning out partisan war porn and propaganda. Kit Knightley says when we and others linked to the public submissions page, there was such a response that the World Health Organization's website actually briefly crashed, or they pretended it crashed so people would stop sending them letters. Either way, it's a win, hopefully one we can replicate in the summer. Until then... The signs are that what scant press coverage there is, mostly across the metaphorical back pages of the Internet, will be focused on making the treaty strong enough and ensuring national governments can be held accountable. Here's an article from the UK Telegraph from April 12th, which headlines, Real risk a pandemic treaty could be too watered down to stop new outbreaks. It focuses on a report from the Panel for a Global Public Health Convention, and quotes one of the report's authors, Dame Barbara Stocking. Our biggest fear is that it's too easy to think that accountability doesn't matter, to have a treaty that does not have compliance in it. Well, frankly, then there's no point in having a treaty. End quote. Now, the GPHC report goes on to say that the current international health regulations are too weak and calls for the creation of a new independent international body to assess government preparedness and publicly rebuke or praise countries depending on their compliance with a set of agreed requirements. Another article published by the London School of Economics and co-written by members of the German Alliance on on Climate Change and Health, or CLUG, also publishes the idea of accountability and compliance pretty hard. Quote, For this treaty to have teeth, the organization that governs it needs to have power, either political or legal, to enforce compliance. And it also echoes the U.N. report from May 2021 in calling for more powers for the World Health Organization. In its current form, the World Health Organization does not possess such powers. To move on with the treaty, WHO therefore needs to be empowered financially and politically. Kit Knightley also points out that it recommends the involvement of non-state actors such as the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, World Trade Organization, and International Labor Organization in the negotiations, and suggests the treaty offer financial incentives for the early reporting of health emergencies. Quote, in case of a declared health emergency, resources need to flow to countries in which the emergency is occurring, triggering response elements such as financing and technical support. These are especially relevant for LMICs 
and could be used to encourage and enhance the timely sharing of information by states, reassuring them that they will not be subject to arbitrary trade and travel sanctions for reporting, but instead be provided with the necessary financial and technical resources they require to effectively respond to the outbreak. End quote. Now, it doesn't stop there, however. They also raise the question of countries being punished for noncompliance. Quote, the treaty should possess an adaptable incentive regime, including sanctions such as public reprimands, economic sanctions, or denial of benefits. End quote. So let's translate the suggestions from bureaucrat into English. If you report disease outbreaks in a timely manner, you will get financial resources to deal with them. If you don't report disease outbreaks or don't follow the World Health Organization's directions, you will lose out on international aid and face trade embargoes and sanctions. So, in combination, these proposed rules would literally incentivize reporting possible disease outbreaks. Far from preventing future pandemics, they would actively encourage them. National governments who refuse to play ball being punished and those who play along getting paid off, it's not exactly new. We've seen that with COVID. Two African countries, Burundi and Tanzania, had presidents who banned the World Health Organization from their borders and refused to go along with the pandemic narrative. Both presidents died unexpectedly within months of that decision, only to be replaced by new presidents who instantly reversed their predecessors' COVID policies. Again, just a remarkable coincidence, I'm sure. Less than a week after the death of President Pierre Nkurunziza, the IMF agreed to forgive nearly $25 million of Burundi's national debt in order to help combat the COVID-19 crisis. And just five months after the death of President John Magafuli, the new government of Tanzania received $600 million from the IMF to address the COVID-19 pandemic. It's pretty clear what happened here, isn't there? Isn't it? Globalist-backed coups and rewarded the perpetrators with international aid. The proposals for the pandemic treaty would simply legitimize this process, moving it from covert back channels to overt official ones. Now, before we discuss the implication of new powers, let's remind ourselves of the power the World Health Organization already possesses. The World Health Organization is the only institution in the world empowered to declare a pandemic or public health emergency of international concern. The Director General of the World Health Organization, an unelected position, is the only individual who controls that power. Now, we've already seen the World Health Organization abuse these powers in order to create a fake pandemic out of thin air. And I'm not talking about COVID. Prior to 2008, the World Health Organization could only declare an influenza pandemic if there were enormous numbers of death and illness. And there was a new and distinct subtype. In 2008, in 2008, the World Health Organization loosened the definition of influenza pandemic to remove these two conditions. As a 2010 letter to the British Medical Journal pointed out, these changes meant many seasonal flu viruses could be classified as pandemic influenza. Now, if the World Health Organization had not made these changes, the 2009 swine flu outbreak could never have been called a pandemic and would likely have passed without notice. Instead, dozens of countries spent millions upon millions of dollars on swine flu vaccines they did not need and which did not work in order to fight a pandemic that resulted in fewer than 20,000 deaths. Many of those responsible for advising the World Health Organization to declare swine flu a public health emergency were later shown to have financial ties to vaccine manufacturers. 
Now, despite this historical example of blatant corruption, one proposed clause of the pandemic treaty would make it even easier to declare a public health emergency. According to the May 21st report, COVID-19 make it the last pandemic, future declarations of a PHEIC by the World Health Organization Director General should be based on the precautionary principle where warranted. Yes, the proposed treaty would allow the Director General of the World Health Organization to declare a state of global emergency to prevent a potential pandemic, not in response to one. That's a kind of pandemic pre-crime. And if you combine this with the proposed financial aid for developing nations reporting potential health emergencies, you can see what they're building essentially bribing third world governments to give the World Health Organization a pretext for declaring a state of emergency. And we already know the other key points likely to be included in a pandemic treaty. They'll almost certainly try to introduce international vaccine passports and pour funding into big pharma's pockets to produce vaccines ever faster and with even less safety testing. But all of that could pale into comparison to the legal powers potentially being handed to the Director General of the World Health Organization or whatever new independent body they may decide to create to punish, rebuke, or reward national governments. A pandemic treaty that overrides or overrules national or local governments would hand supranational powers to an unelected bureaucrat or expert who could exercise them entirely at his own discretion and on completely subjective criteria. That's the very definition of technocratic globalism. Kudos to Kit Knightley for uh, banging the drum on this one. You'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.